We're going to be in Judges chapter 13, the same passage that we were in last week, except this is going to be a different kind of message than really one I've ever preached before, but I'm pretty excited about it. And so we're going to look at Judges chapter 13. We'll just read verses 1 through 8, but I'm going to be referencing uh, Judges 13 through 16 throughout the message. It says this in verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, my plea with you is that you would show us Jesus. That we would see Jesus as being more wonderful than we've ever seen him before. That God, whatever we know about Christ, that you would press it deeper. Whatever we believe about Christ, that you would provoke it, that it might be truer. That God, whatever we worship Christ, that it might be even expressed with greater zeal and greater passion. Lord, show us this morning in high definition how wonderful Jesus is, how planned Jesus' coming was, and how how remarkable and miraculous the salvation that he offers to us now is. Father, I pray for all of the men and women that are here this morning, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would put their feet upon the rock, and that, Lord, they would be brought into a place of deep and awesome worship this morning. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things that I think is pretty awesome about dads is dads are the ones that have to face the dragons at night. And only a dad is willing to be woke up from a deep rim sleep, and y'all know what I'm talking about, to go and face whatever monster or ice maker was heard in the middle of the night with a sand wedge, right? Like, dad is ready. There, there is some kind of terrorist that has planned an attack on his house, and his gut instinct is, let me grab the sand wedge. I think I can take it down, right? And it th- makes me think about a story of, of Gracie Kate Matt, when she was about four years old, and Megan was pregnant with Sarah, and uh, she had watched, we had made the God-forsaken decision to allow her to watch Sleeping Beauty. Now, Sleeping Beauty seems harmless enough, right? Except, except in Sleeping Beauty, there is a fire-breathing dragon, right? And so she became deathly afraid of Maleficent. 
And so every shadow that she saw at night was Maleficent. Every sound that she heard at night was Maleficent. Every thought that she had at night was Maleficent. And I did what dads do. You know, that I, I guess it's the only thing that you know to do. I remember my dad doing this with me. Is you go in and she's crying and she's hysterical and she's, and honest to goodness, you just want to go to bed, right? Like, you, you feel bad for them, but you really just want, you just want it over with so you can go back to bed. And so you walk in and you do what dads do, you just flip on the light. Do you see anything here? Do you see anything here? It's just a shadow. It's just a closet. It's just a bed. It's just the ice maker. It's just the pipes. Like, you turn on the lights and you go through the whole list and you put them to bed. And, you know, they're in there and they're just trembling. Well, I can remember on one distinct occasion that she got into her, she came and she got into the bed with Megan and I because she was so afraid and she was just shaken when she got into the bed and she's just hysterical and crying and she's had another dream about Maleficent and I remember vividly, now this is the great dad that I am, I sat up in the middle of the bed and I said I promise you on my good name if Maleficent walks through that door I will shoot her in the face with a gun. And I remember because this trembling little girl, all of a sudden, it got really quiet. And she started laughing. She said, Daddy said he was going to shoot Maleficent with a gun in the face. And it ended it. It was, it, was, it was over. But you know, there's a picture in there of the way I think we're supposed to understand the Old Testament. Okay, so shadows are not the thing. Shadows are always pointing you toward the thing, right? They're, they're, they're not the, the person, they're not the shape, they're, they're, they're not the object itself. They're the silhouette of the object. They're the silhouette of the person. They're a blurry image of what actually is, of the actual reality. And Hebrews tells us that when we read the Old Testament, that's how we're to understand it. That the Old Testament is filled with shadows of Christ. That is, the Old Testament is filled with silhouettes or blurry images of who Jesus is. So that you can take all of these blurry shadows from the Old Testament. And by the time you get to the, to the coming of Jesus, you have a really good idea of who he's supposed to be. And what he's supposed to accomplish. And what shape he's supposed to take. And so it's not as clear as you want it to be. But when you take all of these shadows and you add them together, you can begin to understand why it is that first century Israel was looking for the Davidic Messiah. Why it is they were hoping that God was finally raising up their deliverer because God had been promising them and showing them and promising them and prefiguring for them who Christ would be for thousands of years. This morning what I want to show you is that what happens when Jesus comes into the earth is it's like what happens when a dad walks into his little child's bedroom and flips on the light. That what Jesus does when he comes is he flips on the light so that now we're able to look back over the Old Testament and see it as we were actually supposed to understand it. That Jesus is the key to unlocking 
all of the stories, all of the tellings, all of the institutions, all of the heroes of the Old Testament. You can even think to Luke chapter 24 and the Emmaus Road, right? And Jesus goes and he has those two disciples that don't recognize him after his resurrection at first. And then Jesus reveals himself to him. And it says that he goes to the law and the prophets and he begins to show how all of the law and all of the prophets are about him. And it says that inside their hearts begin to set on fire. Their hearts burn within them. And this morning, that's my hope for you. So here's what I want us to see, that there is a particular form of shadow that's called a type. And I want us to look at these shadows that are called types and see that Samson is a specific type for Christ. Now, you, you may see that sentence in your, uh, in your notes, and my, my secretary read it, and she made me confirm with her like three different times that I had it worded rightly because it, didn't, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But types are something that Paul introduces us to really in Romans chapter 5 when he says that Adam is a type for Christ. But that really is a key that helps us understand so many of the people in the Old Testament, so many of the events of the Old Testament, so many of the institutions of the Old Testament. That's what types are. Types are people events and institutions in the Old Testament that prefigure Jesus. So you can think about David and how David paints a picture for us of Jesus. You can think about the temple and how the temple or the Levitical priesthood paints for us a picture of who, of who uh, Jesus is supposed to be. You can think about uh, Israel's deliverance through the Exodus and how the Exodus paints a picture for us of who Jesus is supposed to be. Because I think that the way that many of us are trained is when we think about Jesus, Jesus as the fulfillment, we think about those direct predictions that maybe Isaiah makes where he says, for unto us a child is born, right? And we think that it's this direct prediction and then Jesus directly fulfills it. And of course, of course, that is part of it. But y'all, that's just one layer of fulfillment that Jesus fulfilled. That's just a layer, man. It gets better. It gets richer. It gets more wonderful. That the way the Hebrews understood fulfillment is they understood fulfillment to be uh, representative of a host of different ways that Jesus is represented and then proves himself to be true. And one of those is through the types. And I think what this is going to do, what I hope this is going to do, what I'm praying this is going to do, is that this is going to help turn on the lights for you so that you can begin understanding the Old Testament for its gospel richness the way that it's intended to be. And so this morning, there's going to be a whole lot of scripture that's going to be on the screens. I'm not going to be able to read all of that for time's sake, but I wanted you to have it for reference. We're going to talk about some of it, but most of it, I'm going to be telling you the story so that you can begin seeing these parallels because here's what we're going to do it's really cool we're going to look really hard at Samson so that we can look really hard at Jesus we're going to look at Samson and all and the way that the scriptures reveal Samson so that we can see how the scriptures reveal Jesus and so we're going to see three different ways that Samson is a type for Christ the first way that we see is that Samson came through a miraculous birth Samson came through, the, through a miraculous birth. And I want you to hold in the back of your mind if you really think this is all by chance. I want you to hold that in your mind. I, I, want, I hope that maybe even right now some of you are skeptical. That's, that, that's what I hope. Because I think that what you're going to see as we go through the story of Samson, through these four chapters, I think what you're going to see is that God has been at work the whole time. The story of Samson was written more than a thousand years before Jesus was born. 
more than a thousand years before Jesus was born. This wasn't something that came later. This wasn't something that they wrote so that it would fit who Jesus was. This is something that predates the birth of Jesus by more than a thousand years. First, I want you to think about the moms that are Jesus's mom and Samson's mom. So Samson's mom, the wife of Manoah, we never get her name. She's uh, held out in the book of Judges as really being the person of the greatest piety, the person of the greatest devotion to God, the, the godliest person in what is really largely a godless book on behalf of the people of Israel. And we don't even get her name. But it says that the angel of the Lord, she goes to, uh, to her and it reveals to us that she is a barren woman. And here's what that means. That means that she has lived her life long enough to realize that children are an impossibility for her. That they would have tried to have had children, they would have desired children, they would have wanted children, but her womb is dead. Now you have to understand that for an Old Testament Israelite woman, this was her role, this was her place, this was the way that she was blessed, is that she would give birth to children and those children would rise up. You can think of Proverbs 31, right? Those children would rise up and call her blessed. It was a, supposed to be a sign of the goodness of God to that mom that she was able to have those children. Now we understand that uh, today that that is the result of the fall, that that. Uh, a wife or a woman cannot help whether or not she is barren. But this is how she would have conceptualized it at the time. And so God the, sends the angel of the Lord and he interrupts her in the midst of her cursedness. And he says, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby. And, he sa- and so he begins to, to tell her that out of this dead womb is going to come life. Out, out of this cursed womb is going to come salvation. Now, throughout the Old Testament especially, but really throughout all of the Bible, uh, miraculous births are a common theme in the Scripture. You can think about Abraham and Sarah, right? The, the child of promise is Isaac, that he's going to be the one, the seed of, of Abraham, that's going to go on to, so that the promise to God, the covenant to God, uh, to Abraham, can be fulfilled. You can think about Isaac and Rebekah, the same situation. You can think about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of, of John the Baptist. It says the same thing about them. That they're barren. And so there's this common theme throughout the scripture of a, of a barren womb or a lifeless womb that, that is brought life and how God brings salvation and God brings grace and brought, God brings goodness and God brings life through something that appears to be cursed and something that a, appears to be death, which in and of itself is a prefiguring of Jesus. But out of all of the, all of the miraculous births that are told in scripture, there are only two which are unsolicited. Only two. Only two in which the parents don't try by their own means. You can think about Abraham. You can think about Isaac. You can think about uh, with the servants of, of Sarah and Rebecca, how they try to produce a child and manufacture it on their own and, and kind of uh, observe God's will and what they think they're supposed to have on, by their own means and by their own efforts and by their own power. You, you can think about Zechariah and Elizabeth and how they, they prayed and how they were always seeking a child. But there are only two instances of miraculous births in the Bible in which no one is seeking to acquire a child. And that is Samson and Jesus. Samson and Jesus. 
that there's meant to be this parallel in our minds of the birth of Samson and the birth of Jesus, the miraculous birth to the barren womb and the miraculous birth to the virgin are meant to come into our minds at the same time. All right, so we've talked about how, he, how the angel of the Lord comes to the wife of Manoah, but think about how the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. What does he do? He comes to Mary, who is uh, betrothed to Joseph, and he says, you're going to have a child. It would have been the same reaction that Elizabeth had, except maybe even more worried. Like, are you serious? I'm going to have a baby? How can I have a baby? I'm not married. Not only am I not married, I am a virgin. This is an utter impossibility. But he, he, he can, the, the idea, the theme continues on. What does, uh, what does the angel of the Lord tell Samson's mother? He, he gives her prenatal instructions. He tells her that she's supposed to be a Nazarite, that the boy is going to be a Nazarite from birth, which was a rarity. Usually being a Nazarite was something that you did temporarily in your life to set aside a season of your life for the Lord. He tells her what she's supposed to eat and how he's going to consecrate. Mary is told what? She's given prenatal instructions. You're going to name him Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus. You don't get to pick the name. You don't get to go with a family name. He's not going to be named after Pop. He's going to be named Jesus. These are your instructions. Then they're both given maternal expectations. Samson's mother is told what? He's going to be the Savior of Israel. Mary is told what? He's going to be the Savior of Israel. Do you see these parallels and how they begin to unwind? It gets better. It gets better. Not only do we see this in the mamas, now think about the dads, all right? All right, so he comes to Manoah, and what did we say about Manoah? Manoah comes off in Judges chapter 13 a lot like Tim the Toolman Taylor, right? Like, uh, right? Like, you guys know what I'm saying? Like, so, so he, he comes, and, he, and, and uh, his wife comes to him and says, all right, so the angel of the Lord has come to me, and she has told him, me, who, you know, we've been trying to have babies for a long time, and now I'm going to have a baby because, look, God has done it. And Manoah's like, I've got questions, I've got questions. You and I have been wanting to have babies, wanting to have children all of our lives. Now suddenly, you're going to show up pregnant and you're going to say, God did it. I've got questions. And so Manoah goes on to really ask three different questions of the Lord. Like, what are we supposed to do with this child? And what's the mission of this child? Even though these things have been explained. And by the way, who are you that, you know, told my wife she was going to be pregnant and now she is pregnant? Does that bring into your mind Joseph at all? Does that bring into your mind Joseph at all? What happens? The, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, tells her, a virgin, that she's going to have a child. Mary goes, presumably, tells Joseph. And what's Joseph's reaction? I've got questions. <laughs> like, like, we're betrothed to one another. We're, we're, we're supposed to be getting married. But I know we haven't been together. I know that that uh, where I've been kind of on my side of Virtue Island, and I'm not now so sure of where you've been on your side of Virtue Island. And so it says in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to resolve to divorce her quietly. He's confused by the whole situation, right? So we have two confused dads. So we have two, uh, two women who, are, who experience miraculous conception. We have two dads who are now confused by all the circumstances altogether. And now I want you to think about the sons themselves. Because what we end up with is we have two consecrated sons. 
So he goes and uh, the angel of the Lord tells uh, uh, Samson's mom that he's going to be a Nazarite, which means that he's going to be set aside from birth until death, which again, I've already pointed out, is an extraordinary period of time. That for his whole life, he's going to live a life that is extraordinary, that is different than all the other people of Israel are required to live. He's going to live a life of higher standards. He's not going to cut his hair, he's not going to consume alcohol, and he's not going to touch anything dead for the entirety of his life. Not two years, not three years, not ten years, the entirety of his life. Why? Because he's being consecrated and set aside for the purpose of this saving work that God has called him to. This is the same principle that is in what the angel tells to Mary in Matthew chapter 1. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament way of saying Joshua. It's the Greek way of saying Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And so the idea here is that Jesus, by being given this name, is being set aside for the distinct work that God has established for him. That he's being given to Mary and to Joseph because he's being intended to be set aside for the particular redemptive plan of God. Now this is where I think it gets really interesting. I've mentioned to you before the Septuagint. Okay, so the Septuagint, y'all, don't, y'all, y'all let me nerd out for a second. Y'all hang with me because I'm telling you this is cool, all right? So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the reason that that's significant is because most of uh, the Jews and the, the trade language of the time of Jesus was Greek. And so the Septuagint would have been in circulation during the time of Jesus and during the time of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus would have known the Septuagint. In fact, I learned not that long ago, Jesus would have been trilingual. He would have been able to speak Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was a brilliant man. That's pretty pretty awesome. And so the the Septuagint would have been in translation, which means Matthew, this dude that wrote the book, would have known and had large sections of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, memorized in his mind. Now, why do I tell you all of that? What's What's the New Testament written in? The New Testament's written in Greek. All right? So here's what we have. When you take verse 5, where it says, He shall begin to save Israel from the Philistines, and then you compare it to verse 21 of Matthew, and it says, For he will save his people from their sins. In the Greek, in that translation, when you compare the Septuagint to what Matthew has written, the the grammar and the vocabulary of that sentence is almost identical. That they're intended to bring into your mind what happened to Samson. That they have the same mission. They have been set aside for the same work that Samson was always a shadow. Now I just want to stop for a second. I want to stop for a second. Some of you are skeptical of Jesus. And I understand it. I really do. I understand that in your mind that maybe you're thinking that there was a man who went and did all these things and then he tried to make his life fit all the prophecies. Have you ever thought about that, thought like that? That maybe Jesus just knew the prophecies really well and so then he went back and tried to fit his life so that his life matched and fulfilled all those prophets or at least his version of his life went back and matched all of his things. But let me ask you this, how much control does a baby have over when, where, and how he is born? None. Even more so, how does a baby today have any control over what happened a thousand years ago with another baby? 
And yet we can take these two birth narratives, these two miraculous births, and we can hold them in parallel to one another. And what we can begin to see is that it is uncanny, the similarities between the two births, because the birth a thousand years before Jesus was a shadow, a blurry picture of the Christ who was to come. And what I want you to see is that Jesus didn't just poof onto the scene somewhere. Jesus didn't just come all of a sudden and try to make his life line up to all of these things because there are too many shadows and there are too many patterns that are prefiguring Jesus in the Old Testament that would be impossible for someone to try to fit himself too perfectly unless, unless that someone is God. Unless that someone is God. Unless that someone who is writing the story has been writing it since eternity past and has already written exactly how all of these things are going to come to pass and how all of these things are going to be revealed and how all of these things are going to lead to the triumphant moment in which the Son of Man would lay down His life and bring us into the kingdom of God. Oh, God's plan is beautiful, you. God's plan is beautiful. There's a second way I want you to see. So Samson came through a miraculous birth and Samson lived a messianic life. Samson lived a messianic life. Now, you, you may not know why. I use the word messianic very specifically. So the word messianic, it means anointed one. Anointed one. So, uh, sorry. It means, well, it means anointed one. And so the idea here is that it's somebody that God has specifically set aside. Somebody that God has specifically anointed. Now, in the Old Testament... And in fact, in the new, because you're gonna, as you're going to put all this together, hopefully in your mind, you're going to realize that today you are the Lord's anointed. But in the Old Testament, the way this happened is the Spirit of God was not indwelling the fullness of all of God's people. The Spirit of God would come upon a particular man at a particular time to accomplish a particular work. That's what we see in the Judges, right? That's what we see in Samson. It says in verse 24, verse 25, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And so the idea here is that Samson has been anointed by the Spirit so that he can accomplish a specific work that God has. So that in the Old Testament, what we have is a lot of lowercase messiahs, lowercase m messiahs. That, that you have all of these messiahs. David is one. The judges are one. Uh, Saul is one. And in these, as the Spirit of God comes upon them, that they can begin to work in a power that is unnatural to them. That they have a strength that is unnatural to them. That they have a wisdom that is unnatural to them. You can think Solomon. That they have an ability that is unnatural to them. That they have a passion that is unnatural to them. Because the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them and anoints them as someone who will advance his plan of salvation and move the plan down the, down the court. These lowercase messiahs. But what these lowercase messiahs are to do is to prefigure the uppercase messiah that is to come. Jesus. Now you can even think about how this works in the anointing of, of uh, Samson and in the anointing of Jesus. It says in verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Does that not sound exactly like what Luke says about the boy Jesus in Luke chapter 252? And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do y'all think that's an accident? Does that not sound similar to you? gets better. 
So then it says as he reaches manhood and now he's going to begin his mission, the mission that has been destined for him since his birth. And it says that the Spirit of God comes and rushes and stirs upon Samson. And you read about this time and again throughout uh, verses or chapters 14 through 16 after this point. And it brings into your mind, or I think it's intended to bring into your mind, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. How does Jesus' ministry begin? begins out in the wilderness, and he's with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has been baptizing, and Jesus comes and he says, I, I need you to baptize me. And John says, who am I to baptize you? I can't baptize you. Like, like you ought to be baptizing me. And he said, this is my Father's will. And Jesus goes into the water, and he comes out of the water. And do you remember what happens? There is a proclamation from heaven, isn't there? The voice from heaven says, well done, my, my, th- well done. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And it says what? The spirit descends upon him like a dove. That is, he is the Lord's anointed. All of these Old Testament lowercase messiahs have been pointing forward to this uppercase messiah who would be filled with the spirit from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, from the tips of his fingers to the tips of his toes. Now, how would you expect the Messiah to be received? How would you expect someone like Samson that has been filled with the Spirit so that now he can do what he normally can't do, so that now he has great power, someone who has been sent so that he might be able to come and save his people, Israel? How do you expect him to be received? You would expect him to be revered, wouldn't you? You would expect him to be loved. You would expect him to be admired. You would expect him to be obeyed. You would expect him to be followed. That's not what happens with Samson. That's not what happens at all. In fact, there's this weird story. I think it's the weirdest story. Samson's a lot of weird, right? Like I think some scholars have pointed out that the story of Samson gets weirder and weirder because it's meant to show you just how desperate and bad things were in Israel at the times, and I, and I agree with that. But there's this really weird story in which Samson goes and he collects 300 foxes. Like, I don't even know how you do that. Like, how you go and collect 300 foxes? And then he takes these foxes and he ties their tails together. And in the middle of their tails, he puts a torch. And so you can imagine how two foxes that are tied together would run. They're both trying to go in every which way. And so they're just kind of going all over and spinning in circles over the whole land of the Philistines. And those torches are lighting on fire all of the crops of the Philistines so that eventually it causes great economic damage to the people of the Philistines. Well, you can imagine the Philistines are not happy about this, and they're enraged by it. But they recognize that Samson is too much for them to handle, and they, they can't go and take Samson on themselves. And so what they decide to do is they decide to go and attack a group of people in the city of Lehi that was in the land of Judah, Samson's people. And so the Judahites come out, and, and you're expecting that the Judahites are going to go and join forces with Samson so that now, finally, this story is going to pick up the pace and be over with. They're going to go and take down the Philistines. But you know that's not what happens? You know what the people of Judah do? They go and conspire with their oppressors. I want you to hold that in your mind. They conspire with the very people, the Gentile people that are, have been sent by God by, as God's judgment to occupy them. They conspire with them to go and take down their own Savior. Do you see this picture? You see this picture? That what the Judaites do is they find the finest and best ropes, cords that they can find, and they, they bind Samson. Then they go and they hand him over to the very people that Samson is supposed to save them from. Does that bring a bell to you? 
Because it reminds me a lot of what John says when he says, the word became flesh, but then he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The very people that Jesus came to save betrayed him and handed him over and conspired with their oppressors, the Romans, that Jesus, their own savior, might be executed. And they, they bound him and handed him over to Pilate that he might be condemned. Of course, Samson breaks hold of, breaks free from the cords, he was not a willing sacrifice in the way that Jesus was. And he, he, bra- he bursts from the cords and he picks up the first thing that's handy to him, the, the jawbone of a donkey, a man who, again, is not supposed to touch anything dead, touching the, this corpse. And he takes the jawbone of a donkey and he slays a thousand Philistines. And the Judaites recognize. See, that place came to be called came to be called Jawbone Hill because there on Jawbone Hill, Samson had done something through the power of the Spirit that was utterly impossible for man to do. He had killed a thousand warriors by himself with the jawbone of a donkey. And it says they are heaped up. But you can imagine that. There he is standing, dripping. A man who is not supposed to touch a corpse, a man who is not supposed to touch blood, a man who is not supposed to touch a Gentile. There, and he is dripping in the blood of Gentiles. You see, in that moment, there is a dual picture for us. That jawbone hill is supposed to remind us of Calvary Hill. See, as the Judaites would have looked up and they would have seen Samson, they would have seen Samson there in the height of his power, in the height of his might, one who who was fierce, and they would have known and recognized, maybe for the first time, that this was their gateway to salvation. This was their gateway to hope. He was the one who could deliver them. God looked down from heaven and he saw Samson there dripping in the blood of defilement, the blood of the Gentiles holding the corpse of a donkey in his hand. And there at the same time as he is manifesting the height of power, he is also manifesting the height of the defilement of the people of Israel. So think about it. United at one time in one man, the height of power and the gateway to salvation and the height of judgment and the defilement of man. See, this is a picture of Calvary. When God looks down upon his son who has become sin, he who knew no sin became sin so that the father looked down and the curse of the father fell upon him and the wrath of the father, unfiltered and unadulterated, was poured out over him so that the son would look up and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the same time, The thief hanging right beside him could look and see that as he hung there willingly, he hung there as the height of all power and the height of all authority, that there hanging on that cursed tree, mercy and justice had intersected because he was the gateway to true and abiding salvation. That these ideas, the sinfulness of man and the justice and holiness of God are intersected and united in the single person in Christ. Can I tell you, that's your hope this morning. That's your hope. That's why he's worthy of your life. That's why he's worthy of your praise. That's why he's worthy of your worship. That's why lip service isn't enough. That's why mere church attendance isn't enough. That's why owning a Bible isn't enough. That's why all that is enough is everything that you have open and offered to him because he has offered everything that he has for you. There's a third way. Samson 
was born, a, 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 came through a miraculous birth. He lived a messianic life, and Samson died a missional death. Samson died a missional death. Perhaps there is no parallel in which the, the prefiguring of, G, of Jesus is more clear in Samson's life than in their death. Think about this. Both of them, both of them are going to accomplish their mission by dying. Both of them are going to accomplish their mission by dying. Throughout the, the scriptures, it's, or throughout uh, Judges 14 and 15 and 16, it, it talks about Samson always having an eye for Philistine women, right? He's always got an eye for women. He found them to be irresistible, and he found his thirst to be insatiable. insatiable. And so really, he, he is just a barbaric, Philistine-type man himself. But there's only one, there's only one woman that it says he loved. That all of the others were lust, and I'm certain lust was involved here because this is Samson that we're talking about. But there was only one woman that he loved, and it was a woman by the name of Delilah. And so he marries Delilah, and Delilah is herself a Philistine. But the Philistines have had it up to here with Samson, and they're done with Samson. And they are, they are determined that they're going to take Samson down. And so what they decide to do is that they're going to offer a king's ransom to Delilah to see if they can buy her loyalty away from her Jewish husband over toward her Philistine compatriots. And so they go and the five lords of the Philistines put together 1,100 shekels of silver apiece. It's a king's ransom, y'all. It is more money than Delilah would be able to spend in 10 lifetimes. And she's bought. And so four different times, Delilah comes to Samson and she says, Samson, would you please tell me where your strength comes from? Samson, would you please explain to me how you're able to do what other men aren't able to do? Samson, would you please tell me, would you please tell me, would you please tell me? And on the fourth time, the Bible literally says, the Bible literally says that this woman had vexed him to death. And it says, because she has vexed me to death or nagged me to death, that is how it's often translated in the Proverbs, because she has vexed me to death, I'm going to tell you so that you'll leave me alone and I can watch the U.S. open. And he says, from the time of my birth, I've never cut my hair. See, there was nothing superstitious or supernatural in and of itself in the hair. But it was the one part of the Nazarite vow that, Samson had actually upheld. It was the one part of himself that had actually remained totally consecrated and set apart to God. And so this is what Delilah does. She lays her husband in her lap. And she begins to caress his head. She begins to kiss his face. And he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep in her lap, as she rubs his head and kisses his face... She calls the Philistines in to come, and the Philistines shave his head. So that now when he wakes up and he's bound and his head is shaved, he thinks he's going to break forth from the binds like he always has. But now his strength is gone. His strength is out. The Lord has left him. I want you to think about this. Samson is betrayed by his beloved for silver with a kiss. Does it need to be any clearer for us? Does it need to be any clearer for us? This wasn't Judas's idea. This wasn't Delilah's idea. This was written in eternity past, brothers and sisters. 
This is a picture that we're intended to paint. And the eyes are ripped from his eye sockets. And what they do is they go and they bind Samson to the grinding wheel so that now this big strapping man, stronger than any of them, is working for them as a slave, a servant, pushing around the grinding stone as though he's some animal, some ox. And it brings into our mind another strong man who willingly made himself weak for the sake of his people. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 said that Jesus empties himself, but taking on the form of a servant, a servant even who would go and die on a cross for his people, a servant who allows himself to be bound and nailed as though he were a slave. See, the price paid for Samson was actually higher than the price that was paid for Jesus. Samson, the, the, the price of silver that was paid to Delilah for Samson was a king's ransom. 30 shekels, though, is told to us in the book of Exodus that it's nothing more than what it costs to buy a common slave. But Jesus has lowered himself to that position for the sake of his beloved, the very beloved that rejected him, the very beloved that did not receive him, the very beloved that betrayed him, the very beloved that sold him out. And so it says that the people, the, the rulers of the Philistine call for Jesus to come and to be brought to them bound for what reason? That, they may, that he may entertain them. That he may entertain them. And so Jesus is tied between two pillars so that they can mock him. And do you know where he's tied? He's tied in the temple of Dagon, the temple of their, of their patron God, the God that had delivered to them, the strong man of Yahweh, the one who had been such a nuisance to them. He is tied, outstretched, just like Jesus is outstretched on the cross. And they hurled insults at him. And they humiliated him. And they mocked him. And they shamed his God. And it says that as Jesus was there hanging on the cross, that they, they cast lots for his clothes down at his feet, that they would strike him on his face and spit upon him and say, if you were the Son of God, tell us who did it. If you were the Son of God, bring yourself down off the cross. They fashioned a, a, a crown out of thorns and pressed it upon his head. They took a, a cape of purple and they laid it over his bleeding and flayed back so that it clung to him. They put a, a makeshift scepter in his hands and they laughingly and mockingly bowed down and say, Oh, hell, the king of the Jews. He was their entertainment. He was their pleasure. But as Samson was there, Stretched out between those pillars in the, in the temple of Dagon. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him once again. And he pulled with everything that he had. And the pillars that were holding up the tower collapsed. And all of the temple fell down upon 3,000 Philistines. Bringing it down upon Samson's very own head. Where he was the substitute for his people. Where he was sacrificed on their behalf. Where their salvation was the result of his own demise. And there's Jesus. Stretched out. His arms as wide as they would go, him gasping for air as he lay there suffocating in his own blood. And Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is finished. 
and in the temple, the temple of the living God, which had become a place of idolatry and money changers, a place of robbing and false religion. The veil is torn in two from the top to the bottom for the Lord had brought God's own wrath upon his own head that was owed to the sins of all of his people. And he had brought death upon himself that his people might be saved according to his, to his demise, that he might serve as their substitute you know back in chapter 13 we didn't read this part but when Manoah goes and he says uh, and, and he asks the the angel of the Lord and he says who are you tell me your name who are you the angel of the Lord responds this way and the angel of the Lord said to him why do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful seeing that it is wonderful Do you know who the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is? It's a pre-incarnate witness of Christ. It is a pre-incarnate entrance of Christ into the creation where he goes in to superintend the will of the Lord. How is it that all of these things can prefigure Jesus? Because Jesus was there. Because Jesus was planning it. Because Jesus was bringing it to be from the beginning. And because Jesus' name is wonderful. Isaiah tells us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning, brothers and sisters, Jesus is wonderful, is he not? Jesus is wonderful, is he not? You can place your faith and your life and your hope in the hands of Jesus because Jesus is not a Johnny-come-lately. Jesus is not some modern-day idea. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is the gateway to salvation. He is the strong man who humbled himself and accomplished your salvation by his own demise. Oh, but brothers and sisters, he is unlike Samson in that Samson brought the temple upon himself and Samson stayed dead. Jesus brought the wrath of God upon himself, but Jesus three days later was raised from the dead so that now you, you can have resurrection life in Christ. This morning, he is wonderful. There's two invitations. There's two invitations. For those of you who are Christians, my prayer, my deepest prayer has been that you would worship Jesus in a new way today. That you would see him in a new light today that you would be provoked to see him in all of his glory and all of his wonder and that you would just be awestruck at how good and how planned and how, how wonderful he is and that today you would lift up your voices with everything that you have, that you would confess your sins to him again, that you would recommit your life to him because he is worthy of your worship. My prayer has also been that God would save someone, that God would save someone. You see, Jesus is better than you think he is. And some of you, you committed your life to a form of Jesus that was unworthy of him. You thought that Jesus was just about missing hell or it was just about, he was just about making sure that you got everything that you really deserve. But Jesus is about making sure you never get what you deserve, but that you would get what only he deserved. And so this morning, the true Christ is not worthy of a part of your life. He's not worthy of a, of a pra- prayer that you mouth. He's not worthy of just a form you fill out. He is worthy of everything. And my prayer has been that this morning you would see Jesus as worthy and you would commit all of your life to him. We're gonna have elders that'll be down front. We 
would love to pray with you either way. We would love to minister to you either way. If you want to talk more about baptism privately, you can look at the chair in front of you and connect and check baptism, and we'll follow up with you this week. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.